series and that most churches never ever do, and that is we're reading extended passages of Scripture. We kind of got bogged down in chapter 7 so far and reading shorter passages, but today I'm going to read all the way from verse 17 through verse 40. We'll put it on the screen. You can follow along as I read. I just remind you that this is how the Corinthians would have first encountered this letter. They would not have read it in a Bible. They would have heard it read to them in the meeting of the church. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 17. Nevertheless, each one should retain the place in life that the Lord assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing. And uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Each one should remain in the situation which he was in when God called him. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although if you can gain your freedom, do so. For he who was a slave when he was called by the Lord is the Lord's freedman. Similarly, he who was a free man when he was called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Don't become slaves of men. Brothers, each man, as responsible to God, should remain in the situation God called him to. Now about virgins. I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, I think it's good for you to remain as you are. Are you married? Don't seek a divorce. Are you unmarried? Don't look for a wife. But if you marry, you haven't sinned, and if a virgin marries, she hasn't sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life. And I want to spare you this. What I mean, brothers, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they had none. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it weren't theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world, in its present form, is passing away. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks he's acting improperly toward the virgin he's engaged to, and if she's getting along in years and he feels he ought to marry, he should do as he wants. He's not sinning. They should get married. But the man who has settled the matter in his own mind, who is under no compulsion but has control over his own will, and who's made up his mind not to marry the virgin, this man also does the right thing. So then, he who marries the virgin does right, but he who does not marry her does even better. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she's free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. In my judgment, she's happier if she stays as she is. And I think that I, too, have the Spirit of God. <clears throat> Our message texts have been dealing with issues surrounding marriage for the last couple of weeks, and again this week. 
When Paul speaks about marriage, it's important to remember that he thinks of marriage as a good thing. Some people have doubted that. Some scholars have doubted that. But when Paul speaks of marriage, he does so as a Jew. He thinks of marriage as a good thing, established by God in creation and blessed by our Lord Jesus Christ. But it would be a mistake to conclude that if marriage is a blessing, then singleness must be a curse. That's not how Paul sees it. And in today's text, he will again encourage single people to stay single. Too often in the church, it's taken for granted that single people are disadvantaged. They're missing out. They don't fit. We just hope that someday they'll get married so that they can be happy. But that is not how the Apostle Paul, the Christian single, thought about it. He didn't feel like he was missing out. He knew that single people have a real advantage over married people in some ways. He knew that the church of Christ can never reach its potential without its single people. Being single does not make a person some kind of second-class Christian, but neither does it make a person some kind of superior saint. Single people have certain advantages over people like me, but those advantages mean nothing if they don't use them. Now, Paul will speak directly to singles beginning in verse 25. But before he does that, he sets the proverbial stage with two illustrations. These illustrations are meant to support a single point, one that Paul has been making throughout this chapter. And that point is this. You can achieve your potential as a Christ follower where you are. You don't need to change your status. You don't need to get married if you're single. If you're married, you don't need to get a divorce. You don't need to change jobs. You don't need a different position. You can achieve your potential as a Christ follower right where you are. Often people feel like they do need to change. If I was just married to someone who shared my values, if I had a different job, oh, then I could serve the Lord. If I were single, if I were married, if I were anywhere but here, things would be better. But that's all a smokescreen. And Paul is doing his best to clear away the smoke. Again and again, he makes this point. But in verses 17 through 24, he asserts it directly in the form of two illustrations. The first is about changes in religious status. The second about changes in social status. In both cases, he drives home the point that a person does not need to change in order to live fully for Christ, at least doesn't need a status change. Let me read verse 17. Nevertheless, each one should retain the place in life. By the word, the word the, nevertheless is really strange. It's ama uh, in Greek, and it means accepting. And it's going back two verses to verse 15. But nevertheless, each one should retain the place in life that the Lord assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. So whatever your status was when you were called, that is, when you were converted and believed in Jesus, continue in it. You don't need to become something else in order to serve Christ. The first illustration, verses 18 and 19, is the religious one. As far as we can tell, it was not an issue in Corinth, though it was elsewhere. But Paul never mentions it in either of his letters as an issue. And that's probably why he chose it. He's not out here to create controversy. He wants to make a point. The illustration involved a status change concerning circumcision. That is, concerning Jews abandoning Judaism 
and Gentiles converting to Judaism. So Paul says in verse 18, was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. That is, was he Jewish when he believed the Messiah Jesus? Well, he should remain Jewish. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He shouldn't be circumcised. That is, was he a Gentile when he believed in the Messiah Jesus? He should remain a Gentile. Now, when Paul talks about being uncircumcised, there's a certain um, metaphorical tone to that. He is talking about a becoming a Jew or becoming uh, a Gentile. But it's not strictly metaphorical. During the period of Greek colonization, many Jewish men underwent a minor surgical procedure to try to hide their circumcision. They were ashamed of being Jewish. That's what the historian Josephus tells us. But Paul wants the Jewish believer in Jesus to know that leaving Judaism is not going to make him a better follower of Messiah Jesus. If you're Jewish, he says, stay that way. Nor will the Gentile be a better Christ follower by being circumcised, that is, by converting to Judaism. Jesus is Lord of both Jews and Gentiles, and you can follow him as a Jew or as a Gentile. Now remember, Paul is using this religious illustration to clarify a domestic point. If even a change from Jew to Gentile or Gentile to Jew makes no difference in your ability to follow Christ, then neither will a change from married to single or single to married. In verse 19, Paul goes even further. Circumcision, and this, by the way, is one of the... um, most dramatic things he writes in any of his letters. Circumcision is nothing. And uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. You imagine how one of Paul's fellow Jews would have felt as he heard that read? I don't think we can imagine that. Circumcision is nothing? Circumcision is everything. Circumcision is the mark of the covenant. And how can you say something like that and then go on to say that keeping God's commands is what counts? Circumcision is God's command. But when Paul uses the Greek word entele, the word that's translated here as commands, he is not thinking of circumcision or any of the works of the law as he routinely refers to them that he and other Jewish believers observed. He uses entele to refer to specific commands and especially those of the Ten Words, what we call the Ten Commandments. That's especially clear in his letter to the Romans. Now, don't forget this as an illustration. Paul wants the Corinthians to apply the principle involved in a change of religious status to the idea of a change in one's marriage status. In and of itself, a change in marriage status will not make a person any more or any less capable of pleasing God. Paul writes, circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing, but he wants them to transfer that idea to marriage. When it comes to pleasing God, marriage is nothing and singleness is nothing. It's irrelevant to the situation. And so verse 20, each one should remain in the situation he was in when God called him. In the situation, by the way, not in the sins. To make sure we don't miss this point, he'll add another illustration. He says, were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. 
Although if you can gain your freedom, do so. He wants people to know that their situation, even slavery, cannot prevent them from experiencing the richness of life in the Lord Jesus and serving him fully. Now, when you read that, don't think of slavery, the kind of slavery with which Paul was familiar, as if it were the American form of slavery that our forefathers and mothers abolished in the Civil War. In the Mediterranean world of the first century, people often entered into slavery by choice. It meant guaranteed meals and a place to stay. And slaves in the first century did all kinds of work. Some were lawyers, some were teachers, some were doctors, some rose high in the ranks of the military. But at the end of the day, a slave still belonged to another human being. Paul doesn't require a person to stay in slavery if they can get out. If you can get out, do so, he says. But he doesn't want them to obsess about it. The governing idea is always is you can serve Christ right where you are. You can even do that in slavery. So once again, here's Paul's point. You don't need a change of status to please God and serve him well. You can serve God and follow Jesus as a slave or as a free man, as a Jew or as a Gentile, as a single person or as a married person. It's not that Paul, by the way, is closing the door to any possibility of status change. You can read that and say, you should stay wherever you're at all the time forever. But that's not really the point. Right along, he said things like, if you're single, it would be good to stay that way. But if you get married, or he said, if you're married, you should stay married. But if you've already had a divorce, or if you're married to an unbeliever, stay with him. But if he chooses to leave, you're not bound. In each of these various scenarios, with the exception of circumcision, Paul acknowledges the possibility of a change of status. So he's made and reinforced his point with two illustrations, and now he's ready to apply it to singles. Now, as the father of two single men in their 30s, I know the place of singles in the church is important. And I also know that their situation is sometimes awkward and that the attitude some married people have towards unmarried people makes it worse. Don't worry, honey. Someday the right girl will come along or the right guy. But Paul's attitude is just the opposite. He considers the married person to be at a disadvantage. Nevertheless, he says, don't worry, married person. You can still please God and follow Jesus. As this chapter has gone on, Paul has got himself into a tight spot. He is a celibate Christian single. He sees how singleness can really work to a person's advantage as long as that person is wholly committed to Christ. He's writing to people in Corinth who are also advocating singleness. So what's the problem? The problem is they're saying the same thing, but for an entirely different reason one which Paul totally rejects. For Paul, the advantages of staying single are very practical. Singleness allowed him to devote himself entirely to the Lord, to serving Christ in his church. But that's not what the Corinthians were saying. They were saying that singles can achieve a higher plane, a higher spiritual plane, and therefore be more pleasing to God than married people. So Paul is trying to find a way to say yes and no at the same time. Yes to the Corinthians' choice to remain single, but no to their reason. 
And because of that, this passage is unlike anything else in all of Paul's writings. He says, I don't have a command, but a judgment. I'm basing that judgment on God's mercies to me, not on my apostolic authority. That doesn't sound like Paul. I think it's good, he says, not I command you to obey. I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you. This is Paul being guarded. And that's not a Paul that we encounter very often. Now, let me remind you of the situation. There are people in the church of Corinth who were convinced that they could reach a higher spiritual plane. And by that, I mean, they're convinced that they could experience more of the Holy Spirit's presence and power through things like speaking in tongues, prophesying, or imparting healing if they remained single, and specifically if they abstained from sex. They were even urging married people to remain celibate for that reason. And that's what led Paul to write this chapter. You have to go back to chapter verse 1 to remember that. Paul rejects the idea that married people should live a celibate life. But unmarried people, he says, they're a different story. As long as they're unmarried, it's God's will that they remain celibate. And that leads to a further question. Would single people then be better off just to remain single? Apparently, there were people in church who were thinking about getting married, perhaps even already engaged. And the super spiritual crowd at church, those people who wanted to achieve that higher plane, were saying, honey, don't get married. Don't make the same mistake I did. You'll be more spiritual if you live a celibate life. You'll be more pleasing to God if you stay single. So now we can see why Paul answers the way he does. He sees very clearly that a single person like himself has fewer restrictions, fewer competing demands, and is therefore freer to give his time and attention to ministry. Besides that, he knows that some people have been wired. His word is gifted for singleness, like himself. So he wants to encourage those people to stay single and devote their time and attention to serving God and his church. But other people are not gifted for singleness. He doesn't want to make them feel guilty about getting married. Furthermore, he knows that staying single or getting married has nothing to do with one's experience of the presence and power of the Spirit. So he wants to encourage people to remain single and use the the time that singleness affords them to serve the Lord in the church. But he wants to do that without giving them the idea that they're going to somehow be spiritually superior to married people. Now, it seems to me that the key to understanding this entire section and even this whole chapter comes in verse 24, where Paul writes, Brothers and sisters, each person as responsible to God should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Let me give you a more literal translation. Brothers and sisters, in whatever situation each person was when called, that is, when converted to the Lord Jesus, in that situation, he should remain literally with God. The key is being with God in your situation. If you remain single or get married without God, or if you get single or remain married without God, what does it matter? Live the with God life, Paul is saying, and you can do that whether you're married or whether you're single. In verse 26, he says, because of the present crisis, 
I think it's good for you to remain as you are. Not because you desire to be spiritually superior, but because of the present crisis. We often read this text with a kind of filter, as if Paul were saying, because of the upcoming crisis, which will accompany Christ's return, it's good for you to remain as you are. But whenever Paul uses that word present, and it's an unusual word, every time he uses it, he always means present. This is a present crisis. Later, he'll use the word distress to describe it. There was some hardship happening right then in the church, though we can't be sure what it was. We do know that a severe famine took place at about this time in the empire, and that may have been what Paul had in mind, but whatever the case, something was happening, some hardship, and in the light of that hardship, Paul encourages people to retain their current relationship status. Are you married, he asks? Don't seek a divorce. Are you unmarried? Don't look for a wife. Men don't make it your goal to get a wife, and women don't make it your goal to get a husband. But if you do get married, you haven't done anything wrong. To me, that seems wise advice to Christian singles. Don't look for a spouse. Just don't do it. Look to serve God. Get deeply involved in serving Christ. Go to Bible studies. Spend time praying alone and with the church. Get involved in ministry as God has gifted you. Throw yourself into God's service. And if you find yourself thrown together with someone in God's service that you'd like to marry, get married. God knows that some people are better off married. But don't make getting married the goal of your life. Make serving and pleasing God your goal. Too many times people feel pressured to get married. Pressured by friends, by social expectations, by family, and even by the church. And that creates a disposition of dissatisfaction. So some single Christians make it their goal to get married instead of making it their goal to please God. They're always searching on dating websites, at parties, at bars, for someone to marry rather than for some way to join in what God is doing. And guess where that search will lead them? To someone who's doing exactly the same thing. Looking to get married rather than looking to serve God. That's not the kind of foundation on which to build a marriage in which God comes first. So Paul's advice is use the freedom that singleness offers to serve God in his church, not to serve yourself in an obsessive search for a partner. And if while you're serving God in his church, you find someone you'd like to marry, go ahead and get married. Be great. But marriage isn't for everybody. As Paul makes clear in verses 32 through 35, I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. Paul's not saying that's a bad thing. He's saying that's a thing. That's the way it is. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. That's the way it should be. I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. But notice Paul's reason for preferring singleness has nothing to do with reaching a higher spiritual plane. It has everything to do with spending more time and energy and attention serving the Lord on this plane. 
So let me draw some conclusions from this text and then apply them to our lives. And the first one, which can be found in almost every line of this chapter, applies to every Christian. And it's this. Live the with God life right where you are. You can't live the with God life in your sins, but you can live it in your situation. Start living for God where you are. Don't wait until you're where you'd like to be. Are you married? You can live the with God life as a married person, and it can be beautiful. Don't let the added responsibilities of marriage stop you. Are you single? You can live the with God life as a single person. Don't let the isolation of singleness stop you. Make up your mind. Today, I'm going to live the with God life. And along with that, we need to acknowledge this truth, that change of situation will not change our hearts. We will not be better Christians, more spiritual or wiser, by changing our status. We won't serve God better by becoming Jews, or we won't serve God better by becoming Gentiles. We will not serve him better by escaping slavery, even that of the office or the shop. We won't serve him better by getting married or by staying single. If you've been telling yourself that, it's a lie. It's a pipe dream, a smoke screen. If I change my situation, I'll be a better, and you can read that as happier, more spiritual, more moral, more important. I'll be a happier person. I would be much better at following Christ if it weren't for my husband, my wife, my job, my income, my location. It goes on and on and on. But it just isn't true. It's not your situation that's holding you back. It's you. It's your heart. Jesus said every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. Transplanting a bad tree to a good location is not going to give you better fruit. Make up your mind to live a with God life starting now, starting right where you are. If you think some change of status will enable you to do that, you're mistaken. This application is for singles. You listened to me make application for married people last week. This week, married people get to listen to applications for you. Arrange your life around community, and service to God and his church. Not around your hobbies. Not around a search for a spouse. You have a scope of service that exceeds that of your married friends. Use it. Further, don't make it your goal to get married. All too often that ends in desire. I'm not telling you if you want to get married that you shouldn't pray. Oh, God, if you have someone for me, I want to be married. Would you give me that person? Go ahead and do that. But don't make it your goal. I've got to get married. All too often that ends in disaster. Make it your goal to please God, to serve him, to be his. Volunteer for family promise overnights. Get involved in jail ministry. Volunteer at Beginnings Care for Life. Teach a Sunday school class. Serve on the care committee or as a deacon. Make it your goal to serve God. And if while you're doing that, you find someone else who's made it his or her goal to serve God, and you want to serve him together, that's just great. Esteem your singleness. 
Don't be ashamed of it. St. Paul said the person who gets married does right, but the person who doesn't marry does even better. If you think, as my single adult sons have sometimes thought, that everything in church is arranged around and for married folks, then change it. There is a place for singles in the life of the church, and that place is not just in some separate singles group. It's with all the rest of us on work teams and at events, on committees and classes and in small groups. Don't wait for your married friends to invite you over. Invite them over. Paul had, you ever realize how many friends Paul had? Read Romans 16 and read the last half of that chapter. He had friends everywhere. Some of them were married. Some of them were single. Invite your married friends over. In the life of the church, you are not a third wheel. But you may be an axle. Single men and women have long supported the church and held it together. Where would the church be without single people? Without Paul, Timothy, Augustine, Aquinas, Francis, Claire, Teresa of Avila, Madame Guyon, David Brainerd, or Jesus We can't even imagine a church without single people. If you're single, the church needs what you have to give. Right? Final word to married people. Don't make it hard for your single friends to know that they belong. Invite them to parties with your married friends. Stop worrying. Oh, he's going to feel odd because he'll be the only one not married there. Well, then invite other single people too. Stop trying to set them up with someone as if their lives are incomplete until they're married. I know that one hit some of you right there. Oh, wouldn't she be great with him? Maybe we can set that up. Don't do that. If you want to set them up, set them up with some way to serve God in the church and then join in alongside them. Married or single, Jew or Gentile, slave or free, this is what counts. That your life is for Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ is your life. If that's not true... The rest really doesn't matter. All right, let's pray. God, I pray that you will release us from the delusion that all of us have at times, that if we just have a change, then everything will be better and will be better. Lord, we've avoided making the difficult changes inside in the hope that changes outside will make the difference. But would you free us from that? Would you just, every time we go there in our minds, would you bring us back to the reality? It's not about being married or being single or being Jew or being Gentile or about being free or being slave. It's about Jesus Christ and him crucified. And Lord, help us to see what really counts and make us count. For Jesus' sake.